Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so greatly and giving us your Son. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to point us all to Christ Jesus. This morning, as we come to your word, let us be filled with the love, mercy, and grace of Christ Jesus. Let us all be spurred on to follow him evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was just talking with a person, and we were talking about churches. And she said there are some churches that are clubhouses, and that some churches are lighthouses. And I have to admit, I've heard a lot of different analogies, metaphors regarding churches, but that one was new to me. She said, well, it's not hers, but she was just kind of sharing it. But it struck me, clubhouses versus a lighthouse. And so the question I really had was, what moves a church from being a clubhouse to a lighthouse? I mean, when I, when I talk about clubhouses, I mean, some churches you've probably been to in which people are very friendly and they gather, but it's just almost like a social gathering and nothing really happens after that Sunday meeting. Now, there are some other churches that they're not really necessarily a clubhouse. I mean, they do gather and they worship and they sing and they praise, but you kind of leave there thinking something's missing. You know, they got the form right. The theology's good. The gospel is there. The sacraments are given properly. But something's missing. Have you ever had that experience? You've been in churches and kind of go, it wasn't quite there. So what makes a church move from a clubhouse to a lighthouse? And the answer is actually pretty straightforward. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that really brings a church to life. It is the Holy Spirit that brings a church to life. You can do the form of church all you want, but unless the Holy Spirit is there working in you and other people and the church as a whole, it's going to be more towards a clubhouse than a lighthouse. Now, I know there's more nuance in all of this, but I think the metaphor works pretty well. And so today, we're, selling Pente we're, we're celebrating Pentecost, right? It is the miracle of the birth of the Christian church, where a group of believers who were in a room, who knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit, coming to life. And they became a lighthouse where 3,000 people came to faith that very day. So today we are going to learn from God's Word, from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit about being filled by His power, His Spirit, to be witnesses for Christ Jesus. So this is our journey. We're going to first start with Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just a little bit of context here. It starts off this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
So let's set a little context, right? We talk about Pentecost, but I'm not sure if everybody really remembers what that is. Do you remember what Pentecost actually means? Pin drop, okay. <laughs> it means 50th, because it, can't, it comes 50 days after Passover. And it was instituted in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was a harvest festival. It was originally called the Feast of Weeks, but became known as the Feast of Harvest. So it took place 50 days after Passover. And what they did is they recalled the law being given to Moses and to the Israelites. So it was a celebration of God giving the people his law. But it was also then about the first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest, because this would have been uh, at the end of the wheat, I think maybe get this right, at the end of barley and the beginning of the wheat harvest. So they would bring some of the first fruits of this harvest unto the Lord. And they were celebrating, they were remembering, they were recalling the Lord's provision and food for them. That's the historical context for Pentecost. But on this day in Acts, on that day of Pentecost, it was a different type of Pentecost that ultimately would be instituted and celebrated. In this case, it was recalling not the law, but the gospel message. So we had the Old Testament, now we have the New Testament, the gospel message. And Jesus was known as the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. And if you want, you can take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 regarding that. And now, rather than celebrating the Lord's provision for food, for land, for other things, it was a celebration for the provision of salvation. That's the context for this day of Pentecost. You get it? We got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament, we have the law, we have the gospel, we have the provision of food, now we have the provision of salvation. This is Pentecost. So Jesus had been with the disciples for 40 days after he had risen from the dead. And now he had ascended in heaven, and they had like a 10-day period in there in which they were kind of by themselves. And I'm going to guess they were still trying to figure this all out. I mean, think of everything that had happened, and they were still trying to piece things together. But they were told to go and wait. And what they might not have recalled at that time is when Jesus said this, he promised them that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now in Pentecost, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, verse 2 and 3. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So the Holy Spirit comes with wind and fire. Now, was this a blowing wind where all their clothes were flapping all around? No, it doesn't say that at all. It actually says, like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is talked about as wind. As a matter of fact, you've heard the word pneumatic. 
Pneuma, that's wind. So the Holy Spirit is the wind. And in the Old Testament, it also means wind, but it could also mean breath of God. So does the Holy Spirit, the wind, the breath of God, giving life. And this is what the Holy Spirit does, the giver of life. That's what we confess. And the Holy Holy Spirit is breathing life into people. So with the Holy Spirit, there's breath of new life from the spiritually dead to the spiritually alive. Do you remember Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? So this represented a vision of Israel who was spiritually dead? What does the Lord say to him? The Lord said, then he said to me, Ezekiel, then he said to him, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. It's a wonderful example about asking the Holy Spirit to come to a nation that was spiritually dead and bring them life. And it is a spirit who does bring life. Do you remember Jesus talking with Nicodemus? It's in the Gospel of John chapter 3. And he's talking about being born again. And how can you be born again? But by the Spirit. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes with power bringing spiritual life to these people. But it also says he comes with fire as well, right? Now, was this a real fire consuming everything in its path? It wasn't, was it? Just like it wasn't the actual wind, but the sound of wind. So Luke has to record this somehow, and how do you record this miraculous event? So he says, as if tongues of fire. It wasn't like they had a... Have you seen the picture where they got the candle flame over their head? I don't think it was exactly like that, but he gives the idea that the Holy Spirit is fire with them. Now, why would fire be represented? Why would the Holy Spirit be represented by the fire? Well, because what? Cleanses. Very good. Excellent. 100 points for Gerald. (laughs) All right. The Holy Spirit... The fire is a symbol of purity, of purification, of power, of holiness. Think in Malachi, talks about the refiner's fire, and the fire cleans off all the dross, all the impurities. And so what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is purifying the people, purifying these men and women for mighty works of witness. So the Holy Spirit is coming, bringing life and purification so that they can witness. See, the thing that we got to understand here, the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus through the life and witness of the believers. So a lot of people on this day of Pentecost will turn it into the Holy Spirit glorifying them somehow, But really, Jesus said, no, the Holy Spirit is there to glorify me. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, it says this. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, 
for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So on the day of Pentecost, who gets the glory? Jesus. It is Jesus who gets the glory on the day of Pentecost. There are many Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, who miss this message, that they chase the feeling of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever seen some Pentecostal churches where they say they have been drunk in the Spirit. Has anybody ever seen that? I mean, they really sound and look like they're drunk and they're stumbling and falling down. And I'm thinking, no, that is not the Holy Spirit. Or they say they're slain in the Spirit. And you've seen some of these, like Benny Hinn would do this all the time. He actually would take a white coat and he would go like this. And people would just fall down. Or another one would just go, you know, and people would laugh and fall down. I'm thinking that is the glorification, not of Jesus, but of them. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. When you are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are compelled. You are compelled to be a witness to Christ Jesus. So how did the Holy Spirit do it? See, the first miracle really was the Holy Spirit coming. The second miracle was that they could speak in other languages. Verse 4 says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to, I've got one there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So on this day, not only were they alive, not only were they purified, they were able to communicate with all the different people who were there for this festival. And we didn't go through the whole reading, but there are about 13 different languages spoken there. Now I have said this, many times in different places that what they spoke was an intelligible language. It was not gibberish. Again, go to the Pentecostal charismatic churches and you will hear them saying, I'm speaking in tongues and it's pure gibberish. Nobody understands what anybody is saying. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit will provide clarity of communication, not confusion. Again, if you ever see some of these videos, you will see people just babbling away in some unknown gibberish. And some of it even sounds like baby talk. And then they're laughing and falling down, drunk in the Spirit, slain in the Spirit. That's confusion. That is not what happened that day on Pentecost. They spoke real languages so people could intelligibly understand what was being said. That's the miracle that happened on that day. The Holy Spirit will provide clarity of communication, not confusion. And how does the Holy Spirit do it? Through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then it says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the powerful preaching that comes in the witness on the day of Pentecost was through God's word and the primacy of God's word. If you take a look at Peter's sermon, and it is one of the most powerful sermons in the entire Bible, he references and starts first with the word of God. And then he goes on to explain what that means. This is the pattern, actually, that every Bible believer, Christ-centered preacher should be doing, which is you start with the word of God, and then you explain. And then you go back to the word God and explain. If you take a look at my, my sermons, generally 15, 20% are simply quoting God's word. Why? Because that's the primary focus. So Peter uses three readings. He uses one from Joel, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. And what he does, he says, okay, this is what has been said, what was foretold. This is now what is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Foretold, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Just like we talked about Pentecost, the law, gospel. So he starts off with Joel. And this is actually, uh, the full verses are 16 through 18. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So he starts with Joel. Now, you should read Joel if you haven't. It's only three chapters long. doesn't take very long to read at all. And you're going to be probably surprised to find out what the context is. The context is the nation has been ravaged by locusts. That's the context in which Joel is giving his prophecy. And one person put it this way, I like it. Joel called the people to repentance, promising the restoration of the prosperity, foreseeing the coming of the day of the Lord, the dawn of the messianic age, when the Spirit will be poured out on all of Israel. So he starts off quoting Joel with the nation that had been ravaged by locusts, but now foretelling that there will be the day of the Lord. He says this, and in the last days. There's that phrase. You've heard this. <laughs> you might have heard this a lot this past year. Are we in the last days? Have you heard that? Seems like we might be in the last days. Okay, here's the question. Are we in the last days? Yes, we are in the last days. When did the last days begin? When Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven. That is the beginning of the last days. And so we are in the last days until he comes again. So if anybody asks, are we in the last days? The answer is yes. 
When will the last days end? Don't know. Only the Father knows that one. So we are in the last days. And what Peter is doing, he's saying there's a demarcation here. That everything that happened beforehand, before Christ Jesus, was now a foretelling of what's happening now. There was a before Christ, and now there's an after Christ. Just how we number our years, right? There's a demarcation. And he says, these are the last days that are now being fulfilled. Are they completely fulfilled? No. But he's saying there's a section in here that is definitely being fulfilled right here and now. And what, what he's saying is, is that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So what he's saying is on Pentecost, the promise he is giving is that the Holy Spirit was poured out so that the people were called to repentance for salvation. He's saying what God foretold through prophet Joel is now being fulfilled here, but not for food that will perish, but for food that is eternal, Christ Jesus, the bread of life. Again, first fruits analogy here. So what did God give to the people that day, on the day of Pentecost? He gave himself. He gave himself. The Father had sent the Holy Spirit. Remember, one God, we're going to do Trinity Sunday next week. But one God, God gave of himself, and the Holy Spirit was sent. And the Holy Spirit pointed people to who? To Jesus. So God gave the greatest gift, which is of himself, on that day of Pentecost. All to the glory, pointing to Jesus. And when he says he's going to pour out his spirit, there's a sense of abundance in that language. You know the 23rd Psalm? David says, my cup overflows. There's the sense when you read the language that there's an overflowing of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen here. And he says, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So let's talk about this for a little bit. Prophesy because there's a lot of confusion of what to prophesy means. A lot of people want to say they focus on the foretelling, like future events that are going to happen. But the majority of prophecy is simply, thus says the Lord. Prophecy, more than anything, above all, is this. It is about having God's word given to you, thus says the Lord. And I got to tell you, look, people say, oh, I want to be able to prophesy. Take a look at the people who actually were prophets. They were scared to death when they received a word of the Lord. They knew how powerful it was. I mean, take a look at Isaiah. Take a look at Jeremiah. Take a look at Ezekiel. You want, you want to see somebody who also was frightened? Take a look at John in the book of Revelation. 
These people getting God's word were scared to death. And so they were very careful about saying, thus says the Lord. The other aspect about this is much of the prophecy was about repentance of sin, of coming back to God, of giving God glory, not man. And a lot of prophets, modern day prophets, you probably don't listen, watch, but I need to because I got to be the watchman on the wall. It's really bad and sad because what passes for modern day prophecy is junk. And that's the most polite word I can use here. It is junk. It is garbage. What passes for prophecy is mostly saying, oh, I have a word from the Lord that you're going to get this particular job, that yes, you will get married, that all all of that. Modern-day prophets give out messages like that, or who's going to be elected. I mean, I know you saw some of that this past year. I prophesy, really? Really? There's no call to repentance in any of their prophecy. There's no pointing to Christ Jesus. See, modern-day prophets, what they do is they glorify you, not God. But true prophecy, true prophecy fills you to compel to witness to Jesus. Look, by the way, this is not, this is not a, a, a just a modern-day issue about false prophets. Jeremiah wrote about this. He said, Jeremiah 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so this is God speaking, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. To everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. God's saying, look, those people are glorifying you. They're not glorifying me. Don't listen to them. True prophets speaking the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, almost always call for repentance of sin and calling out upon the name of the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, the prophecy compelled people to witness to Jesus. See, I... We, 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 have you ever seen healings, so to speak? I, I know you see them on TV, and a lot of that, again, is just... Okay, that's a theological term. But there's one that came my way recently, and it wasn't a big production or anything. This, this was, they were just having baptisms. And this woman who really couldn't walk and had trouble swallowing, she was baptized. And she could actually swallow, and she could stand at least on her own. But what really gave it the air of, I think, a true miracle is that she literally finally, she just got down on her knees and talked about how much Jesus loved her. And she was just weeping 
because of the love of Christ Jesus. See, when, when miracles happen that way, there's a thankfulness to God and a glory of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here. And I have seen people who've been born again, and they are just compelled, filled by the Spirit, to talk about Jesus. Luther writes this. He says, thus now, as concerning this passage of the prophet prophesying visions, dreams, all are one thing, namely the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. I want to read that again. Namely, the knowledge of God through Christ, which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes to burn through the word of the gospel. So Peter's saying everybody who was being filled by the Spirit that day is confessing Christ Jesus. And then he gets to this most important part, I think, of this part from Joel. And you want to highlight it in your Bible. It is verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is central to what Peter is talking about. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So one person put it this way. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It is a cry from the heart, a lamenting sin and imploring mercy. Think about the blind beggar at Jericho. And what did he call out? He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It was a heartfelt cry unto the Lord. And they couldn't keep him quiet because his heart was crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the, the woman who has been a prostitute or maybe even the sex trade for years. This is the drug addict who has been addicted for years. This is the one who is involved in the occult. This is the one who is a banker or a mortgage broker who has only been living for money so far. This is the one who's lonely and depressed. This is the one who feels so set apart from everybody else. This is the one in which marriages are having difficulty. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And who is the name of the Lord? His name is Jesus. Because as Peter said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus then goes on to explain all of this. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus, Peter gives the gospel message, right? 
that Jesus lived, that he did mighty, wonderful works, miracles, and then he was crucified, died, buried, rose again because death could not hold him. And when Peter gives the message, this is central also to his message, is that he is risen. As we say on Easter, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is what we proclaim because it is central to our faith. That he is risen means that we have a living hope. Peter wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And see, when, you're, when, when you got that living hope in you, right? It's not just a Sunday-only sort of faith, but a living hope throughout your life. You can face all of those difficulties, all those trials, all the tri tribulations. You will not be shaken. Briefly, Peter says in uh, verse 25 through 28, he says, For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So as I was studying, as I was preparing, that, that one verse really stood out for me. You will not be shaken. When Christ Jesus is your bedrock, your firm foundation, your identity is in him. You can go through a lot of stuff and still not be shaken. Oh, it can still be hard because there's no promise that life won't be hard, but you won't be shaken. Just recently, I was having a conversation with a young woman in her 20s. And uh, we were talking, and she'd been going through some tougher times, transitions, kind of wondering, did she make the right choice? All, you know, all that stuff that happens in your 20s. And uh, she asked me, when's it going to stop? When's it going to be okay? And I made a face. I didn't mean to. We were FaceTiming. <laughs> I, di I didn't mean to make a face, but I kind of did involuntarily. And she said, what? And I said, you, do you, you don't know the answer? I said, I do. I just don't know if you're going to like what I have to say. And uh, she said, well, say it. And I said, when your identity is in Christ Jesus, when you have faith in him alone, because he's your rock, he's your redeemer, he's your lighthouse, you're still going to have the storms of life. You're still going to have ups and downs. But when your faith is resting upon him and him alone, you won't be shaken. See, on Pentecost, there was a whole lot of shaking going on, right? 
with all the people who, the apostles, who were becoming bold in their faith, but for those, they were shaken to their very soul and called to repentance and then belief in Jesus. And 3,000 people came to Christ that day. And the church, 3,000 people all in one day, and they were not shaken. There's a lot of things that are happening in this world right this very day that are shaking the church. And a lot of people have fallen away, but for those who are on the bedrock of Christ Jesus, we stand firm no matter what. And this is all not on our own strength, right? Because on our own, there's another theological term. On our own, apparently that's my favorite one for today. But we will be shaken without Christ. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stand firm. So for you today, this day, I put this in there specifically. Pray like there is no tomorrow. Normally our prayers kind of go on and on and on like because we know there's years and years. But what if you prayed like there is no tomorrow? Like you really got down on your knees or if if your knees are too creaky, you're at least sitting there, right? Metaphorically on your knees, praying. Holy Spirit, Move powerfully in me. Give me the life. Purify me. Make me grow into greater depth, breadth, love of Jesus, being his follower. Pray that. Like there is no tomorrow. And then also pray for this church. Again, like there's no tomorrow. Pray for Joy Church and all the church, Bible-believing churches in Fountain Hills here and throughout the world, that they are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can be lighthouses for Christ Jesus, that we can share the miracle of salvation with them. Will you do that? Will you pray for yourself and for this church? Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I do pray for each and every person here and each and every person who is listening that we are filled by the Holy Spirit, that we see Christ Jesus shining brightly, and that we follow him with love, with fervency, with thanksgiving. And I pray for this church, that you move powerfully in this church, and that you make this a lighthouse unto this town, under this state, under this world. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 